Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like our fruitful vine within your house, and your children like olive plants around the table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Our Father, you said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I thank you for the dads here, so many who indeed fear you, who revere you, who seek with all their hearts to walk in your ways, that they might raise up a godly heritage, that at their dinner table it might not be fretful, but great blessing. And we ask today for not just our own children, but the hundreds of children that we believe you are going to bring to this campus. I pray for each and every teacher that you would give them great patience, earnestness of heart, that they would walk in the Spirit, that this week would be a turning point for the hearts of many little boys and girls, that you would open up their eyes to the truth of the gospel, that they might believe and be saved. Now open up our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your word. Please come and help me and fill me and anoint me and use me. The Lord of glory, the one who bought us with his own precious blood, might be magnified. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 13. If you are joining us for the first time, we recently completed a book of the Bible, and before we begin our next book, I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And as you can see from the bulletin outline today, concerns Lot and the days in which he lived. God prophesied about these days in advance that we might be prepared for them and so that we would not be surprised when they came. And God spoke in both the Old and New Testaments by type, by analogy, by direct prophecy of the very days we're going to study. So this morning I want us to think about the days in which we find ourselves by considering the days of Lot. You say, well, why the days of Lot, Pastor? Because of these words that Jesus said. Listen to this, I'm reading from Luke 17. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So the Lord Jesus, if you were here last week, taught us that there was a parallel between the days of Noah and his return. And today he is going to underscore for us 
And we'll study it from the book of Genesis that there's a parallel between the days of Lot and the days in which we live in. So you can see the topic is Lot's day and Jesus' return. Before I'm finished, I think it will be clear to all of us that both Noah and Lot were not only saved men, but they had different outcomes. Noah had a fantastic outcome, relatively speaking, for an old covenant saint. Lot's outcome was disastrous. Now, providentially, this sermon fell on Father's Day. And that's, I think, just the Lord's working. God knows that at the end of time, in the latter days, that many people's hearts would be cold and indifferent. Speaking of not unbelievers, but believers, at the end of the age, which we will study later in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said this, because lawlessness is increased. And Jesus said, through John, his apostle, sin is lawlessness. Because lawlessness or sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The New American Standard had a predecessor. It was called the ASV, the American Standard Version of 1901. And that translation says, because lawlessness is multiplied. In other words, there's always been sin. But at the end of time, God says it will be multiplied. In fact, it will become so increased that it will be very difficult for those of you in law enforcement to be able to control it. Why? Because the love of God's people, their heart will grow cold. And when you extinguish the light that we're supposed to have, darkness overtakes the light. And when a believer loses his saltiness because of a compromised life, then righteousness is no longer preserved. And so God is in the business of transforming lives that we in turn might influence the culture. But when sin and compromise and coldness of heart sets in, when it begins to ooze in the hearts of God's people, then our effectiveness is gone. Now today we're going to be studying a father who just messed up royally. And since Lot and his family are a picture of what many believers will be like before the return of Jesus, I want us to study this man so that you and I might not be like him. We don't have to be like him. We choose to be like him. And many times, one of the reasons God will record failure in Scripture is because he wants us to learn from it. Listen to these words that the Apostle Paul said. He said, now these things, he had just recounted in 1 Corinthians 10, a number of Israel's great sins. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So there's much on this Father's Day that we can learn from Lot's failure. And if you're not a father but newly married, there's something you need to hear today. And if you're a wife, God has something here for you. If you're a young child, listen up, because God wants to speak to you and prepare you for the day in which you find yourself. Sadly, in Genesis 13 through 19, we have the account of a foolish father who had a wicked wife and delinquent daughters. And there's a process that he goes through that leads to the disintegration of his family. It's unfolded really in three phases. There on your outline, it begins with the warning from Lot's worldly compromise. Phase one in the story of Lot serves as a warning, and it's rooted in his worldly compromise. If you're new online, there's a place where you can print out the uh, outline this morning, or if you're here, 
and it's your first time, it's right there in the bulletin. Now, I want to begin reading in Genesis chapter 13. Follow along in verse 1. So, Abram, and by the way, if I call Abram Abraham before he is renamed Abraham, I'm in good company because Stephen did that in his great sermon in the uh, book of Acts. So, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. The land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Now don't miss what's happening here. Abram and Lot both have so many cattle and sheep, they're prospering so much that there's not enough grazing land for both of them side by side. And so this range war starts between the cowboys of Abram and the cowboys of Lot, and they get into some argument, and Abraham, who's concerned about their testimony, wants to mediate a solution. Look at verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, because we're brothers. He's saying, look, we're brothers. We both love and serve the same God. Not to mention, we're living in this land with the Canaanite and the Perizzite. And it won't do any good for them to see that we're not getting along. So he knew that this quarrel needed to be quickly quelled. And so God adds this important footnote in verse 7, that the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. Unlike Abram when he was out of fellowship with the Lord down in Egypt, right now he's walking closely to the Lord and he's very concerned with his personal testimony. The devil knows that if he can see God's people fighting and at odds with one another, that they won't listen to the message that we are to share. And so notice verse 9, he responds in a very unselfish way. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. What a marvelous and unselfish attitude. Lot, you choose. If, if you want to go north, I'll go south. If you want to go west, I'll go east. You choose. It's in your court. I'm impressed with him because he's the leader. He's the older of the two. Abraham being the recipient of this covenant that God had made from which all the nations of the world would be blessed because through his offspring would come the Messiah. God is blessing him incredibly. And Lot is a recipient. He experiences the overflow of this man of God's blessing. He could have said, Lot, it's over. <laughs> Look, you're just going to have to work for me. That's it. But that's not what he does. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't play king of the hill. He very cordially, very graciously, unselfishly, he lets him choose. Now, on the other hand, Lot, he's filled with greed. He's filled with worldliness. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that parenthetical footnote by Moses identifies the location of the property. It's called Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And it's a unique piece of real estate. I hope you picked up the two distinctive traits that this land has. First, notice it's called, it's like the garden of the Lord. In other words, he's comparing it to the garden of Eden. Now, no one had been in the garden of Eden since Adam, and it was gone at this point, undoubtedly destroyed in the great flood. But anyone who had heard Adam's testimony of what it was like, no one could possibly even exaggerate it because there was never a greater place in all the earth before the fall entered in. It was a perfect place. And so in Lot's mind's eye, as he had heard about this garden, he said, this place is like the garden of the Lord. But notice also, it's like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. That's the worldly dimension to it. Remember, Lot had been down in Egypt, and he had had some of his carnal appetites whetted. So he reads in his mind, here's a little bit of Eden. Here's a little bit of Egypt. What could be better? And that's precisely what a lot of Christians are doing in this day, where sin is being increased, where sin is being multiplied. They want a little bit of both worlds, a little bit of Eden, a little bit of Egypt. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself. What a disastrous decision. You should circle those two words for himself. Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, thus they separated from each other. Now we know from Genesis 14 and verse 8 that this valley was comprised of five cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zebulun, and Zoar. And we know that the population was large, that each area had a water hole, so to speak, a water source, which is critical in this region of the world. And archeology span has uncovered that there was probably as much as a million people living in this zone based on the graves that they have found. Verse 12 says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. A lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Underscore that, as far as Sodom, it's critical to understanding what will unfold in this man's life. He's influenced by what he saw, and so he pitched his tents there. Verse 13 says, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Some put the word exceedingly at the end of the verse, some in the middle of the verse. It actually modifies both words, they're exceedingly wicked, they're exceedingly sinners against the Lord. And Moses wants to insert that parenthetical note because he wants us to know what their reputation was like. It was well known what these people were like. Now, somehow Lot rationalizes. He knows that this is, quote unquote, sin city, but he wants to live there. He probably thought, well, I'd like to live there. It's like the garden of the Lord. You talk about a choice piece of real estate in this dry country. It's magnificent. But it's also a little bit of like the land of Egypt. And I liked it down in Egypt. After all, we won't move into Sin City. We'll just put our tents out there in the suburbs. Maybe he and Mrs. Lot had a conversation. What do you think, Mrs. Lot? Do you think we should move to the suburbs of Sodom. She said, that's a good idea, Mr. Lot. We could um, be on the outside. We could even be maybe a lighter, a testimony of these people. Uh, it's just a short chariot ride, and the entertainments are great in Sodom. We could be there in no time. And the academics of Sodom High School, they're superb. I think that's a good choice. So this was a turning point in the man's life. 
It's a fork in his spiritual road. And so the text says he moved his tents as far as Sodom. I was trying to speak to some parents recently. We've had over 3,000 people in the last 30 years go through our homeschool seminar. And if you're listening online and you would like to learn about homeschooling, you can go to searchthescriptures.org or communitybiblechurch.us, and you'll find the most recent presentation. And I was trying to help reason with some parents why they might want to consider getting their children out of government schools. Most of the parents who come here, they have their children in public schools when they come. That's the standard fare for the average Christian, and especially if they come and they don't know Jesus is their personal Lord. And uh, the devil knows the power of education for good or for evil. Listen to what Joseph Stalin said, that great communist leader. He said, education is a weapon whose effects depend on who holds it in his hands and at whom it is aimed. Charles Potter, in 1930, he wrote in Humanism, A New Religion. He and John Dewey, who was a, John Dewey was the father of progressive education. He did more to humanize public education than any other single person in the last hundred years. He was one of the architects, of course, of the Humanist Manifesto. But Potter, who was his disciple, wrote these words. Education is thus the most powerful ally of humanism, and every public school is a school of humanism. What can theistic Sunday school, meeting for an hour once a week, and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? He asks the question rhetorically, and of course his answer is practically nothing. Of course, if you've been to my seminar, then you know in the history of education, initially in America, everyone was homeschooled, with the exception of those who could not read or write, and then typically, the most educated person in the community, who was the pastor, would teach in literally that one-room schoolhouse that served as the church on Sunday and the schoolhouse Later on, later on, as time progressed, there were dame schools, which were basically private Christian schools. But understand, public education doesn't really kick in until the mid-1800s. And so here's Potter in 1930, and he knows that if they can capture the minds of children through education, then they can take them in the direction they wish. This is what the Protestant reformer Martin Luther said. He wrote, I am much afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in examining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of the youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must be corrupt. Timothy Dwight, he was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. He served as the eighth president of Yale University. And when public schools started in his day, he gave this warning, quote, to commit our children to the care of irreligious people is to commit lambs to the superintendency of wolves. Vadi Bauckham, a great pastor, in a recent article he wrote, five reasons to get your children out. I thought he might become the president of the Southern Baptist Convention last week, but he couldn't because he physically lives in Africa running a school there. But he said this, non-Christian education puts the child in a vacuum. The result is that 
the child dies. Christian education alone really nurtures personality because it alone gives the child air and food. Modern educational philosophy philosophy gruesomely insults our God and our Christ. How then do you expect to build anything positively Christian or give a theistic foundation where there is a negation of Christianity and theism. No teaching of any sort is possible today except in a Christian school. James Dobson, my wife, by the way, back in the early 80s was listening to a broadcast and he had a guest on, Raymond Moore, and we had never heard of homeschooling. In fact, most people in America had never heard of homeschooling. And he had the grandfather of homeschooling in the 1970s where the movement was just starting and going back to our origins. And she happened to see the book and picked it up. And she'd come home and read it to me at night. By the time we were in the third chapter, I said, we're going to homeschool. And we homeschooled our children. But Dr. Dobson just last week in his June newsletter said this concerning public education. He said, public education focuses on lesbian, gay, bisexual and queer studies. This agenda has invaded math, science, reading, writing, physical education, music, art, and social science for all 13 years of a child's schooling. I would get my children out of that godless educational setting as quickly as I could before more damage is done. I would either homeschool my children or find a quality Christian school that would begin every day with prayer and the reading of Scripture. By the way, there's a great website. I serve on the advisory board. It oversees some 300 homeschool organizations. It's called publicschoolexit.com. We'll give you a lot of information, publicschoolexit.com. Here's what John MacArthur said last week concerning, excuse me, last month concerning the public school culture. He said the public schools are, quote, systematically designed and weaponized to destroy children, and God will severely judge parents who fail to raise their offspring and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The child sent to a public school will come under the influence of those whose agenda is anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-Scripture. Now, I've been preaching this for 40 years. As I said, we've had over 3,000 people go through our home education seminar. But when I began to preach this, as bad as the public schools were then, they don't even begin to compare to what the public schools are now. You talk about a salacious, evil agenda that is aimed at taking down the children of America. Just two weeks ago, I mentioned to you the Biden administration decided to hold school lunch money hostage to force their transgender policies, including boys, to be able to use the girls' restrooms and locker rooms starting in grammar school. I think there's too many parents who just blindly think, well, if I enroll my child in a good public school and I attend church and just somehow make sure they're involved in Sunday school, that they'll turn out just fine. That's what Lot thought. Lot didn't live in Sodom. He lived out in the suburbs. Hey, listen, dropping your children off 
in Sunday school and bringing him to this worship service or maybe even to vacation Bible school or Awana, you think they'll just be fine. That does not relieve your responsibility that God has given you as a parent to teach your own child. Do you remember when Jesus was asked on what occasion, what was the greatest of all the commandments? You can read about it in Matthew chapter 22. He quoted Deuteronomy 6. Here, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. As I shared recently at the homeschool education seminar, you cannot remain neutral because the government schools are not neutral. There's no neutrality in the government schools. I hope you understand there is a worldview that has grown drastically evil even in the last 24 months that they're trying to put on your children. Jesus, speaking of neutrality, which he said was an impossibility, said, the one who is not with me is against me, and the one who does not gather with me scatters. Listen, only Christian education can provide a clear standard of what's right and wrong. And I'm not here to rank on some of our administrators and assistant principals and teachers, most of whom all home educate their children. (laughs) Some of them are going to face a very difficult day ahead. The president of the United States on Wednesday, I read through pages and pages of his executive order. As he had over 300 homosexual, transgender, lesbian people in the White House. And his executive order influenced every single department. Here's what the Secretary of Education needs to do. Here's what the Secretary of Transportation, every single department. And all of them have between one and 200 days to report back to the president of how they are going to implement their policies concerning the LGBTQIA lifestyle. And I'm concerned for some of our teachers, much like the man in Virginia in Loudoun County, who refused because it was against his conscience to use the preferred pronouns of a child. Now, he won in court, but it's being appealed. But I guarantee what the federal government has coming down the pike is huge. And yes, even pastors, because what he wrote, we talk about conversion therapy, that is preaching the word of God that a homosexual can become straight, That's what I am to teach. That's what I am to preach. The federal government's going to make that against the law. Sometimes I pray, Lord, take them, but then I think the alternative might be worse. And then the second in command would be Nancy Pelosi, who walked a drag runway last week, affirming wickedness. Listen, the scripture says that we're to bring our children up in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. Go into Buford Public Library. Go into the library where your children are in a public school. You'll see books like Heather Has Two Mummies. You'll see all these colorful books in the children's section for kindergartners. I saw one this week, and it shows a little five-year-old going, looking in the mirror, and the title of the book is, Am I a Girl?
These children are being taught evolution. They're being taught to revere Mother Earth. And so Jesus said that you are to teach them diligently. You're to speak to your sons and your daughters when you sit down, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. They're being taught transgenderism is normal. What do you think that will do to a five or six-year-old? You can convince a five-year-old that there's this big fat man named Santa Claus with a long beard who has a red suit on and he has reindeer that flies and he can be sucked down every single chimney in the world. What are these kids going to believe? They're going to believe what you tell them. They say, oh, you know, we've got all these kids who, you know, they get to be 13 and they think they need to have a sex change and this and that. And of course, you've been polluting their minds since they were little. That's what they're being taught. What do they hear on the playground when they rise up? Foul language. Dirty internet sites that their friends have been visiting. What do they read when they walk by the way? That this is a drug-free zone or that the bathrooms are gender neutral. And again, Christians who are there, they have to put their light under the basket. And my concern is for those who work there, because what's coming down the pike is, will their conscience be violated? And they have to have enough moxie and enough spiritual steel where they must say, we must obey God rather than men, and if it means losing their job and quitting or being fired, then they need to do what is right. Our schools have changed. They've become anti-God, anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, anti-Bible, and the Lord of truth is not welcome there at all. We're not to see how close we can get into Sodom without being influenced by Sodom. Look, I... Spoke to Ray Moore, who's been on Dr. Dobson a few times, and he's the head of ExodusMandate.org, a great organization. And I thought what he shared with me this past week was very wise. He's worshipped with us here a number of times over the years. and He said, you know, you've got all these grandparents who are trying to help their kids out with tuition money for college. He said they should take that money and put it in tuition money for kids in grammar school and high school. And I thought that's a very wise statement, Ray. Because by the time they get to college, if they've been in public education, if you put them in kindergarten all the way through high school, where everything is mitigating against the Holy Scripture and you expect that the product will be godly, there's too much going against you, too much scripture that's being violated. Now, I am not saying that you can't reach a point where your kids can be strong and take a stance. We home educated our children, and they went to college, they went to Liberty, they went to the University of South Carolina, they went to the Citadel, they went to Clemson, they went to George Mason Law, they went to Harvard Law School, they went to Harvard Business School, but not before their blood ran bibline where they had the spiritual steel where they could stand up in the midst of those pagan institutions. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. 
Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 15, he warns, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, if you know those two verses, then you know both are in the context of what people are being taught, that the bad company are false teachers. He's referring to so-called Bible teachers who are espousing what is false. They're corrupting good morals to conform people to their way of thinking. And the same is happening in the public school system because education is a powerful ally, as Charles Potter said, to humanism. They're trying to indoctrinate your children with a worldview that is anti-Bible and anti-Christ. And if you are lukewarm, if you are apathetic like Lot was, and Jesus said that is what will characterize most believers at the end of time, you won't be able to protect your children from these things. You won't have the discernment to know the kinds of decisions you need to make. And so there's this vacuum where God was kicked out of our schools and has been quickly filled with a number of controversial subjects like secular humanism, like critical race theory that has nothing to do with racial equality. I hope you know that. And socialism and Marxism and intersectionality and a, a biblical morality that has been replaced with perversion. You need to be alert. You need to guard your heart that the spirit of the age not capture your heart. Look, it's amazing to me how these parents will go and bring their little children to some library, like in Greenville, South Carolina, where you have some guy dressed up like a woman, a drag Bible reading, and now churches are doing it on Sunday morning. When people lose their minds, they lose their morality. When people become immoral, they become insane. And that's the culture that we are living in, a depraved culture. And if this ministration has its way, if what was written in that executive order on Wednesday unfolds the way I think it is, we are headed for huge trouble in this nation. Now understand, no form of Christian education is a magic bullet. If you traffic in filth during the week, and you think you can just homeschool your kids or put them in a Christian school and everything will be fine, you will be misled. But your goals don't need to be undone if you're walking with the Lord because greater is he that is in you who is in the world. Listen, here's the top problems that the American public school system had when I was in public school in the 1960s. Talking out of turn, Chewing gum, running in the halls, making noise, not putting your paper in the waste baskets, getting out of turn in line. Those were the top six problems. Here's some of the problems in 2022. Rape, robbery, assault, personal theft, absenteeism, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, bombings, arson, the carrying of weapons, vandalism, mass shootings, extortion, gang warfare, warfare um, unwed pregnancies, abortion, suicide, lying, cheating, bullying, gender dysphoria, fornication, homosexuality, and transgenderism. So please consider the alternatives. The day has changed. You should try to do everything in your power 
to get your children out of the government school system because it is thoroughly evil and you will not be able to obey the great and foremost commandment that God has entrusted to you. Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. And often, sometimes, even in what we would consider to be a good public school because they're walking with fools and with children who are being immersed in paganism, they become foolish themselves. Add to that, if your child is a Christian, he soon becomes the object of bullying because he stands for what is right. No, I I don't want to look at that. Why don't you want to look at this? All the kids look at porn on their phones. Why don't you want to look at it? Because I'm a Christian. And they will be bullied to no end. And if you don't think this is happening in Beaufort County, you are deceived, my friend. I hear of it in my office in counseling. It is happening all across this state. And so if the Pew Research in 2019 assessment is correct, they said 73% of teenagers who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, by the time they get to college, walk away from the faith. Barna said 79%, Josh McDowell said 81%, but that doesn't surprise me because 90% of evangelical Christian children are either in the public school or the secular private school. So this was the first step to the disintegration of Lot's family. Worldly compromise. It was a respectable sin. We're not going to live in Sodom. We're just going to live on the edge. That's phase one. Phase two, his moral compromise then leads to corruption. So learn from the warning from Lot's corruption. The warning from Lot's corruption. First, he compromises by thinking he can live on the edge of sin. But before long, he's caught up in sin, and it leads to corruption. Turn over to the next chapter, to Genesis 14. And as you're turning there, let me remind you what the Apostle John wrote under the Spirit of God. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, he's not talking about the people of this world. For God so loved the world, he gave his Son. Jesus was a friend of sinners, What he is speaking of is the world system, their way of thinking. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so our goal is not to see how close we can get to sin without sinning, but how far away from sin we should be. And so God is giving this warning. And in Genesis 14, we have the record of this confederacy of kings that attacks Sodom, and the people are forced to flee, and Lot is captured. Look at um, uh, verses 11 and 12. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their food supply and departed, departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living now, notice, in Sodom. He's not living on the edge anymore. He's living in Sodom. So his compromise led to corruption. He no doubt deceived himself, and the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? First, he rationalizes, we'll just live in the suburbs, But now he's living in the city, and he's going to get more entrenched as we move through this. Maybe he thought, hey, it's a a lot simpler. 
to live inside the city. We won't have to travel all the time. It'd be easier to get the kids in Sodom High. Or maybe his daughters pressured them. Maybe his sons pressured him. Dad, all our friends go to Sodom High School. Why can't we go there? Dad, all our friends go to this church over there. It's compromised. The preachers drink. They use R-rated movies as illustrations in their sermon. But that's where all our friends go. Dad, can't we go there? Okay. And he yielded. You can't live on the edge of sin and not be influenced it. And so his conscience is becoming dull. He's reached a point where he finds himself at home. And that's what happens with sin. You, you, you begin to entertain yourself on it. What once amazed you will now amuse you. So, you know, last week they had a major movie on Hallmark of two gay men. Fox went south on us. Did a five-minute piece on how a child supposedly, before he could speak, this little girl knew he was a boy. And, of course, her mother wrote a best-selling book when he was five. And all week long, they've been doing ads about Gay Pride Month. In fact, when we get to chapter 19, we're going to find Lot was a VIP. He's in the city gates. Turn to Genesis 19. When you come to Genesis 19... The chapter reminds us of a very biblical truth that God is long-suffering, but he doesn't hold his wrath and anger forever. David said, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us nor keep his anger forever. And so in Genesis 19, God lets his anger go and he expresses how he feels about the sin of sodomy. Let me set the context for you. In Genesis 18, if you're familiar with it, you have the record of uh, God revealing to Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, in 18 and verse 20, it says, and the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. And when we come to 19 and verse 13, the angel said to Lot, for we're about to destroy this place because their outcry, there it is again, their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Twice over, God says his ears in heaven are listening to the heinousness of the sin of sodomy that is unfolding in this city. It's an outcry that is so great that it's going to bring the wrath of God and it's sobering that there are sounds that God hears that we don't hear. The sin of the LGBTQIA lifestyle is producing an outcry. And we may not think that God is listening and watching, but he is. And I wonder what he hears from Atlanta or San Francisco or Boston or Dallas or Charleston or maybe even our own city. Well, in Abraham's day, there was a horrendous outcry. The twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah invited the wrath of God. Never before or since has God ever literally rained fire and brimstone down on a place. And the New Testament tells us twice over that what he did in Sodom and Gomorrah tells us how he feels about this. And so if you think God is in favor, as Tim Keller says of same-sex attracted Christians, you're wrong. That's like saying, well, I'm just a lustful homosexual, lustful uh, heterosexual man. No lust is to be repented of. 
And same-sex feelings are to be repented on and brought under the sanctifying power of the Spirit of God. But when you've got a so-called apologist like Keller or Sam Alberry, who's making his way into all these evangelical platforms and people, oh yeah, maybe this is what we need to do. And so they come out of the closets much like they did in America, or they started to some 35 years ago. And sadly, this month is Pride Month. And what they call pride, God calls wicked. Verse 1, 19, chapter 19. Now two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now the Bible teaches that sometimes angels come as humans, and whenever they show up in Scripture, they always show up as men. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says that you can entertain an angel and not even know it. So these two angels, they don't look like angels, they look like two men. And it's interesting because if you remember from chapter 18 and verse 2, and when he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And if you study chapter 18, there's two quote-unquote normal angels and then one different kind of angel. He's called the angel of the Lord. The word malek means messenger, like angelos in Greek, both languages. Maybe better term the messenger of the Lord because he's no normal angel. He is called God, he is called Yahweh. It's one of the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus before Bethlehem. And that's why after Bethlehem, you never see the angel, the Lord again. But he doesn't come into Sodom. Well, God is comfortable being with Abraham because he's walking with the Lord But he's not comfortable going to Sodom where Lot is because Lot is out of fellowship with God. He doesn't feel at home with him, and yet he is a believer, as we will see. But in saying this, neither does God abandon Lot. He's one of his own. And so he loves him with an everlasting love, and he sends him with two, two angels there to rescue him. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Sitting in the gate speaks volume to me because it tells me that he's involved as one of the city fathers. It's in the gate of the city where business was conducted, where legal matters were done. He's become a big shot. He lived on the edge, moved into Sodom. Now he's a big shot in Sodom. He's one of the leaders in Sodom. He has pledged himself to uphold the laws of Sodom, which would include some of the perversion and deviation from what man knows to be true because the law of God is written in his heart, and yet he pledges to uphold these laws. I understand it's not like, well, I moved into Sodom and then things got bad. It was bad ever before he got there. We already read, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. He just got used to it. He felt at home with it. And he was ignoring the great moral implications it would have on his family. He's a man. Hey, man. How you doing, Mr. Lott? Everybody tips his head. How's Mrs. Lott doing? Hope all is well. How are those little lots at home? Fine, thank you. Everything is well. And he's wealthy. He's prosperous. He thinks God is blessing him beyond measure. Little does he know he's about to lose it all. So sitting here in the gate, of course, he immediately knows, notices these two angels Let's keep reading. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. 
He knew these were no ordinary people. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. He has no idea why they've come. He thinks these angels are just like tourists or businessmen passing through. They said, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. We'll just camp out tonight. Thank you, but no thank you for your hospitality. But knowing the immorality of Sodom, Lot doesn't want that to happen. It's like these angels are testing him, verse 3. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So far, so good, but what follows is shocking, some of the most deviant behavior recorded in Scripture. Verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Don't miss that. Like a little bit of leaven, it permeates the whole loaf. This sin had permeated the city, men from every quarter and from every age, young and old alike. And that's what's happening in America today. Americans are becoming more and more accepting of this wicked lifestyle. And again, the things you will laugh at and entertain yourself with, before long you'll embrace. Now all across America, state and federal laws are being written against born-again believers And I think what we've got coming down in the next 100 to 200 days based on the executive order, you should go online and read it. We're in for a ride like we've never seen. There was a time when laws were written against this behavior. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul tells us is to happen. That laws are written in a society for those who are deviant. Not made, he said, for they're not made for a righteous man but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers or whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Some people have already left this morning, and I'm sure I know why. But I just want you to know, this is what the Word of God says, and so your argument is not with me. It is with Holy Scripture. And God tells us that these laws are written not to condone this behavior, but to curb it. Because God knows when sins like these are left unchecked, it will invite the judgment of God, and it will be like a cancer that will destroy a people. Please note that God does not in this verse view homosexuality like some genetic predisposition. I spoke to the head, the CEO of a major Christian organization two weeks ago. I won't tell you who yet. I'm hoping he's going to work through it. He said, well, Sam Alberry, who's one of his speakers, this former pastor, he says he's always had an attraction to men. I said, one of two things happened with that man. I said, he was either abused as a young boy, sodomized or fondled or something by some other man, and so he had such shame, he didn't know how to deal with that shame, 
And so he tries to justify the shame. And so he was a flagrant living homosexual, supposedly has repented of that, but now argues you can have same-sex attraction and be a good Christian. And I won't tell you all the ways that you can express that because it's not fitting for this audience. I said he was either sodomized or he's just a downright liar. But I said, you are letting evil in the front door of your organization. Now notice these men at Lot's doorstep in verse 5. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Here are these sodomites who are unashamed of their lifestyle, yelling for the men in the house that they can have intimate relations with them. And by the way, when God describes something like this, he always does it in a way that it's not sedacious. So you should never have to fear about your children being taught from Scripture, at least if it's taught what what God says. Now, there are these liberal theologians today. There are these churches all across America this month that are having drag queen story hour to, to pray with their children. And they're having all these services with gay and lesbian people, United Church of Christ. United Methodists, on and on, and they will rationalize by using a text like Ezekiel 16, and they'll say, well, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality, but a lack of hospitality. However, the New Testament commentary given by the Spirit of God in Jude verse 7 tells us, no, it was the sin of homosexuality, gross immorality. Let me read to you what Ezekiel wrote. As I live, declares the Lord God. Notice, Lord, capital G-O-D. So Elohim, Yahweh. God is underscoring his, his powerful nature, and yet he's the covenant God of Israel. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister, and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, and she did not help the poor and needy. So God outlines us for the sin of Sodom. The very first sin he calls pride. The King James renders it arrogance, and the Bible plainly says God is opposed to the proud. I fear maybe someone listening to me today will not become a believer because of your pride, because of your unwillingness to admit your spiritual inability to save yourself. Notice the second sin, the sin of gluttony. The New American Standard renders it here, abundant food. The King James has fullness of bread. That's God's way of just saying the people were more focused on feeding the the desires of the flesh than they were on spiritual things. Paul says in Philippians of unbelievers, their God is their belly. Third, we're told they were guilty of careless ease. That is, they were idle. The Living Bible paraphrases this by saying they were guilty of pride, too much food, and laziness. And by the way, if you're a dad, you should teach your child how to work. Teach them how to sweat. Get them off of some of those stupid video games that are destroying their lives Fourth, we learn that they were selfish and that they did not help the poor and needy. And that's all capped off with, notice, abominations. Verse 50 says, thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Well, what were these abominations? Ezekiel doesn't have to spell it out because everyone was familiar with Genesis 19. 
Just like the pagan nations were familiar that God split the Red Sea and the Jewish people came through in dry land. They were familiar with the great flood and they were familiar with what God had done in Sodom and Gomorrah, that those people were guilty of sexual perversion. But if you did not understand Ezekiel and somehow you missed it, all you would need to do was read the New Testament, like Romans 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Jude verse chapter 1, or 2 Peter chapter 2. And yes, people tell me, well, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. Every once in a while, that's asked in the Bible line. Yes, he did speak about, against homosexuality. You say, Where? In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. That includes Leviticus, that includes Deuteronomy. Not to mention, by virtue of his definition of marriage, he spoke against homosexuality. Have you not read, he said to the Pharisees, that he, God who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Again, in 2 Peter 2, 6, God tells us this, that he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. Jude 7 says he reduced them to ashes. And he said there, it's not only a picture of how he feels against his sin, but it's a picture of the eternal fire yet to come in a place called hell. Jot down this verse, this is important today, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. There Moses wrote, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. By the way, this verse assumes there's just two sexes. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now Moses is describing androgynous behavior sometimes referred to as gender dysphoria or gender fluidity or transgenderism. By the way, this is not a command prohibiting a common garment that men and women alike would wear. This is a command about blurring the lines between the sexes. What we would call today transgenderism. We've just gotten more sophisticated as to how we unfold this truth. In Genesis 1.27, God said, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God gives clear evidence that people are either distinctively male or distinctively female. And understand, in God's economy, your gender follows your biology. So when our new Supreme Court justice is asked, what is a woman? And she can't answer it. This is a sick world. And when you have someone say, well, biologically, I'm a man, but gender-wise, I'm a female, that's a perversion. That's the day we are living in. And we may do this in a more sophisticated way than in Moses' day, where through surgery, we cut up the body, or through drugs, but the sin has not changed in some 4,000 years. And if you don't remember anything from this sermon, understand that trans transgender people can no more change their sex than they can their race. You cannot change it. And these doctors who are castrating 13-year-old boys and doing double mastectomies to 13-year-old girls are evil. 20 years ago, they would have been locked up in prison for child abuse. And now the President of the United States is heralding them. 
Listen, a doctor can manipulate your body, but you still have the same set of X and Y chromosomes that you were born with. It's not a mystery that gender is not fluid. That is a doctrine of demons. You cannot have a certain biology and another kind of gender, but that's what he wants to teach your children in public school. And they're starting early. You don't think your kids will be influenced? Get them out. Our president said this, and I quote, affirming a transgender child's identity is one of the best things a parent, teacher, or doctor can do to help keep children from harm. And parents who love and affirm their children should be applauded and supported, not threatened, investigated, or stigmatized. As I told transgender Americans in my address yesterday, I will always have your back as your president so you can be yourself and reach your full God-given potential. Look, no one should ever harm a child. He's the one who's harming the children. He started feeding this garbage, these demonic doctrines to kids in first and second and third grade in the libraries in Beaufort County and in the public schools, even if a teacher is not himself or herself espousing them. All the kids have to do is to go in the libraries and see what these kids are getting. You start feeding that, the kid gets to be 13, he's going through puberty, maybe I'm a girl, maybe I'm a boy, maybe I should have my body operated on, maybe I should take some kind of puberty blockers. God in heaven is grieved. It's the worst kind of child abuse, both physically and spiritually. And Jesus warned in Mark chapter 9, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd be cast into the sea. The literal reading in Greek is idiomatic. If you have the New American Standard, the marginal notes, it doesn't say heavy millstone. The Greek literally reads, a millstone turned by a donkey. Because Jesus is underscoring the difference between a millstone that a woman would use in her house that was small to grind her flour versus a large millstone that would take a donkey to turn in. Drowning was a form of Roman execution, not a Jewish one. But he wants to underscore the seriousness of this sin. That it would be better to be drowned with a heavy millstone around your neck than to meet God because the next verse goes on to describe that those who are harming children will meet God in a place of eternal retribution lest they repent. Now, we may think we're smarter than God, but God says the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And it's foolishness to say that there's such a thing as gender fluidity. It's foolishness to say that the LGBTQIA lifestyle and however many other letters you want to add to it should be embraced and affirmed. God says in Psalm 139 that he knit you together in your mother's womb. God gave you the gender that you have. And these are filthy abominations that happened in Sodom and that are happening in America. But these folks won't take no for an answer. Look at verse 6. But Lot went out to them at the doorway, shut the door behind them and said, Please, my brothers, don't act wickedly. God has no business calling them brothers. These are unholy, sinful sodomites. 
But he's so anesthetized and corrupted in his thinking. And if you want to see just how much, look at verse 8. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But these men don't want women. They want men. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came as an alien. He's not one of us. And he's already acting like a judge. By saying he's acting like a judge is a clear indication that as a leader sitting in the gate, he had not before addressed this immoral and wicked lifestyle. And so when he does, they're shocked. This one came as an alien. Already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. These men are persistent. They're so consumed with lust, they won't take no for an answer. And Lot is so corrupted, he thinks he's going to solve this angelic dilemma by doing something good, by giving his own two virgin daughters. Now understand, this just didn't happen overnight to this guy. This was a process. As I wrote in this chart, when he came, Genesis 13, 10, he lifted his eyes towards Sodom. Then Genesis says he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Then in the next chapter, he was living in Sodom. Then in chapter 19, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. And before we're done, we're going to see that when God is about to destroy the city, he hesitates over Sodom. It begins with friendship with the world's values. And before long, you're loving the things of the world. And that's where he's at. He came to Sodom. It looked attractive. It looked promising. It looked enticing. And that's what the devil does with sin. But when he's done with you, he'll chew you up and spit you out. That brings us to the third and final point. There's a warning from Lot's compromise. There's a warning from Lot's corruption. But there's a warning from Lot's calamity. Notice verse 10 and what these angels who came as males did. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. The Bible tells us that angels are physically stronger than we are. And so these angels who come as men open the door. They grab Lot and bring him in. And then God immediately strikes out through his angelic servants. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. Now, don't miss their reaction. That they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. That's scary. They're physically blind. But they're clamoring to get in the house to satisfy their homosexual lusts. These are militant homosexuals. And you will see many of them walking in the streets with all of their perversions and all of their parades. But understand, they're not all like this. Like Jeffrey Dahmer. They say when you spoke to him, he seemed like the nicest guy in the world. But if you turned the wrong way, he'd strangle you to death. And some of the nicest people I've met in this world are homosexual people. Very pleasant people. And so after a while, he's a nice guy. She's a nice person. Maybe it's really not all that bad. And we are ignoring 
what God says. We are doing them an injustice. We are affirming that it's okay for them to live like they will, and they will spend an eternity in hell. Now, you think it's bad now in this time of lukewarmness. Once the church is gone, we're going to study it in this series. The restraining influence of the Spirit of God in the church will be removed. And so if on a scale of 1 to 10, a lost person is a 2, he'll be a 10. And if a lost person is 8 or 9, he'll be blown right off the charts. And that will be the perfect atmosphere when you have anarchy in a culture. You need someone who will lead, who will take over. And that's when the Antichrist will step in. Now look at what these two angels say to Lot in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever else you have in the city. Bring them out in the place. You read the text carefully of these chapters. He had sons, plural. He had daughters, plural. He had sons-in-laws, plural. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry, there it is again, same Hebrew word, this distressing cry that is heard by God, their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And as we noted from Genesis 18 and verse 20, the outcry is so great, it finally tipped the scales where God is going to send his wrath. But old carnal Lord, he has little to no influence on his family. Look at verse 14. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They thought he was joking. Why? Because Lot had never seriously before exercised his spiritual leadership. And many times when a man is out of fellowship with God for years, and then all of a sudden he wants to get something right, they don't listen. He has no spiritual authority. And if you're living in carnal ways, and you may be doing it in a way that is hidden, you think, well, nobody knows. My kids don't know. You will have no spiritual authority with them. Furthermore, and when morning dawned, The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But again, he's numbed by his carnal lifestyle. Look at verse 16. But he hesitated. The Hebrew word, macha, means to linger or to delay. He hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the t- city. His family, they're, they're just dilly-dallying. They have to be drugged out of the city. Maybe Lot's wife wanted to go in and get her jewelry. Maybe the daughters wanted to be suitably dressed. Maybe he wanted to go to get his bank book, but they're just dilly-dallying in the midst of great spiritual danger. And it came about, verse 17, when they had brought them outside, that one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. But even Lot, he lacks a respect for real spiritual authority. He says, oh, no, my lords. He's doubting the direction that God is giving through these angelic messengers. Verse 19, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to. 
and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? He's pointing to the town of Zoar, whose name means small, that my life may be saved. And he said to him, behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. I I can't go where you want me to go. It's too far. He's probably a big fat man. Probably is. Way out of shape. Can't make it up to the mountains. Let me go over to Zoar. He's moving so slow, so argumentatively. He's dulled by sin. He has systematically destroyed his own life. Escape for your life. Don't look behind. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. Verses 23 and 24. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It is so filled with sulfur and brimstone that God uses the Hebrew word rained. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. It's a catastrophe. It's of monumental proportions only to be compared up till this point with the great flood, but won't even be compared to the coming tribulation period that will be far worse. And don't forget both Jude and Peter said that this mimics the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Verse 26 is amazing. But his wife from behind him looked back. Remember, God said, don't look back. Looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. She ignored God's instructions. Why? Because her heart was still in the Twin Cities. So she looked back. And the Hebrew word that's used means she looked with a sense of longing. Now, I'm just going to read verses 27 to 38 with very little comment. I want you to see the historical record with his two daughters. Now, Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow, overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. And there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner. The, the, the Hebrew word direct means the way or the custom. There's no one to come into us after the custom of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. 
And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she bore a son and called his name Berami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. This is the choice they make. Instead of trusting God in his time to provide a husband, what do they do? They adopt a custom, a manner, a darek, which they no doubt saw for years in Sodom and maybe heard about in their own high school. And one becomes the father of the Moabites, and the other the father of the Ammonites, who if you know your biblical history, two of Israel's worst enemies. Three applications in the form of questions as we close. Stay with me. I'm preaching long. Stay with me. Number one, are you repeatedly exposing yourself to the world's sinful ways? That's the first question. Are you repeatedly exposing yourself to the world's sinful ways? If you are, then learn from the rest of the Bible that repeated exposure breaks down your resistance We've seen these three stages, compromise, corruption, then calamity. And Satan knew that if he could get him to follow this course of action, that it would ultimately lend itself in drunkenness, debauchery, total destruction. And if you allow yourself to be in a place of temptation, and if you are putting your children under instruction that is anti-God and anti-Christ and anti-Bible, you're doing them a great disservice. This is why Paul, when he describes immorality, pornea, be it premarital sex, extramarital sex, perverted sex, he says, flee it. He says, don't linger around it. Don't entertain yourself with it. Flee it. And so wisdom and discernment that you can only have as you walk with God, Hebrews 5 says, it will help you to think through, well, how do I, on the one hand, where God says, come out and be separate, and on the other hand, how do I go and preach the gospel? And those are the two balancing truths. God loves the people of this world. He loves Joe Biden. And I don't know if it's too late for Joe Biden. Only God knows, but he's lost. He's on his way towards hell, and he's taking millions of people with him. But God wants our president to be saved. And so it, it, it takes wisdom to know how to provide for your family, for your, for your wife to be a worker at home. That's God's ideal. My hat is off to a mother who has to work to help put food on the table. But that is not God's plan. Let's be very clear. An oikos ergos. A home worker. An impel ergos is a vine worker. Where does a vine worker work? In a vineyard. A geo ergos. Geo, land or dirt. Where does a dirt worker work? On a farm. Where does a oikos ergos work? In her home. We need to be wise. Therefore, come out and be separate, says the Lord, and don't touch what is unclean. And yet compassionate, because there go I by the grace of God, had God not rescued my life and given me the gospel. And we need dads who will take some leadership, who will try to protect their children from evil. 
and get up on Sunday morning and say, let's go to church and be around the dinner table. Let's open God's word and let's pray together. That's the kind of dads we need in our day. Second, I would ask, are you like Noah or are you like Lot? In Luke 17, Jesus said, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. And a few verses later says, it was the same as it happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On the day, on that day, let no one who is in the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, let no one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Think about before the great flood, just before God brought his wrath on the whole earth, what did he do? He put Noah and his family safely in the ark. And just before God poured his wrath out on Sodom, what did he do? He got Lot and at least the two daughters out of Sodom. And just before the Antichrist comes and God brings the tribulational wrath, what will he do? He'll remove his church by the rapture. Now, please understand there are many implications. When Jesus comes, he says his return for the second coming that follows the rapture. But when you see the prophecies for the second coming unfold, you know the rapture is that much closer. He said it will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. The days of Noah, if you were here last week, were days of moral permissiveness and violence and lawlessness. And the days of Lot were days of moral perversion. And there will be two classes of people living on the earth when Jesus comes. There will be the Noah type who will represent the spirit-filled kind. He wasn't a perfect man, but he walked with God enough where he could influence his family, and all of them got on the ark. But on contrast to the Noah type, there'll be the Lot type. How did Lot go to the mountains? They had to drag him. He lost his sons. He lost his sons-in-law. He lost his wife. So what kind of person are you? Like Lot or like Noah? And then third, I would just ask, are you like Lot's wife? She really represents a class all on her own, and that's why Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. She had her heart in the world. She longed for what Sodom had to offer, and she turned into a pillar of assault, and she was lost for all of eternity. Jesus is coming just as sure as the flood came. Jesus is coming just as sure as God rained fire and brimstone out of Sodom. The Noah types will receive great reward. The Lot types will receive Great regret, but the lot wife's kind, they will meet great wrath. You've got to choose. You cannot be neutral. Now, our Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the patience of your people. And we've heard your word, and we know sometimes as your word says, you give us what we ask for, but you send leanness into our souls. Help us not to be foolish, to reject what your word plainly says, to rationalize it and just do what most Christians are doing in an age when hearts are cold and lawlessness is increasing. I pray today, our Father, for the dads here. Thank you that we have hundreds of great dads. 
who have found Christ, many, some who have come here, they've grown, they've matured, they're making wise and godly decisions for their family. May their tribe increase. I pray for the lot lot kind of dads that need to repent and get things right. They may not be able to undo some things, but today they can go forward, help them to do that. And I pray for those who are like Lot's wife, who may be religious but lost. Help them to come to the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he came into the world to save sinners. Thank you that he saves transgender, homosexual, drunks, fornicators, adulterers, anyone, self-righteous people, that whosoever will may come that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen.